I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Thomas Ermacora. He's a futurist, an urbanist, and technologist whose work focuses on social impact design, open source thinking, and the circular economy. He is the author of Recoded City, Co-Creating Urban Futures, and has worked with organizations including the Vatican, NASA, and MIT on issues ranging from the refugee crisis to mitigating climate change. Spencer and I thought that it made a whole lot of sense to speak to a futurist, as so many of us find ourselves so stuck in the realities of the present moment. So uh, let's get Thomas on the line. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So I guess I want to start with, tell us what's at the top of your mind right now. Well, interestingly, most of the past days have been around the macro issues that we're facing because of the nature of what I'm usually involved in. But a little accident the other day brought me into the micro. I have a little dog I was walking with around the house where I am right now. And some careless owner had his giant pit bull chew on my dog, and he was bleeding to death until I got him to uh, safety with my wife, who mm. punched the dog before I got there to release him. And so it reminded me that in a matter of a few seconds, uh, even though the main concern we've had in our minds is to protect ourselves and our closest and you know, think about the future of post-COVID and during COVID, the small realities uh, become absolutely dominant. And there's still such things as life and death outside the virus. So that's mm. kind of the thing I might want to bring to the fore. People shouldn't forget that this is also reminding us to be very close to reality. Yeah, we see it as kind of the great revealing. And I guess what I'm interested in is from your perspective as a futurist, as an urbanist, what do you think this pandemic is revealing? I think this pandemic is revealing two very different things that are connected in the long term. The first thing is how dysfunctional some of our systems are at all levels, from intergovernmental, international, all the way down to local municipality, even family order things. So we've been accustomed, particularly in the West, to a relatively comfortable way of life for almost since the Second World War. And that just means that it's more and more difficult to get used to things not functioning the way they should. And we've had some reminders. We've had storms. We've had different elements related to climate change that have reminded lots of people. And of course, there's been wars and there's been lots of things reminding a lot of the rest of the world how real it is to be confronted with the difficulties that can arise. That's one big thing. It just highlights dysfunctionalities at every order of the system. So that's kind of a short-term thing. You know, what, what do you do about that? The second one is how poorly we design preparedness. And that, I think, is very related, obviously, to resilience and how much it's incorporated in our budgeting and planning for society. So we've talked a lot about it, you know, everything from the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities, to you know, lots of different initiatives. There's even chief resilience officers in cities, etc. So it's not like it's an absent thing from the conversation. But I think in terms of the weight of what it means in terms of risk, it's much too small. And so the way that these two things get linked up, obviously, is that if we have a better normal state of preparedness and resilience, and we also create systems that are less 
dysfunctional in their deeper functions, then we can actually start to think about the kind of world we want to live in and not the one that gets broken down by the pandemic. Mm. I want to kind of talk about time real quick because connected to this, you know, we're so preoccupied in our, our daily lives with the second, the minute, the hour, the day. How do you think as a culture and a society, we can begin to shift toward longer term thinking? Well, I think that there's, um, let's say, two types of clues. The first one is the one that's close to your habits. So I think that there's been a lot of talk about how social media and the zapping culture uh, that we've built increasingly through digital devices and digital devices that's pushing us to the not being in the now, but being in the fast, fast, fast. Mm. And so we, we've cultivated that way of living. And traditionally, most societies had things that they had to do that would cultivate the relationship to the long, or at least to longer timeframes than your, let's say, consciousness would normally force you to have. So let's say farmers in particular, I think are very accustomed to think in rhythms that are a bit longer. They think seasonally, so maybe it's not long-term, but they think certainly much longer than most people. I think we need to move back towards habit formations that are more designed to, to bring about a relationship to nature, to, to things that don't live as quickly as our light-speed social media society. And then the other side is more, I think, related to what kind of things we value. And that's more maybe a, a bigger question for communities. Mm. And I think in particular of our elders. So this crisis is showing that it's being, you know, obviously more dangerous to people of a certain age and immunocompromised or vulnerable to a different sort of viral infections. And I think so that injustice should actually redouble our interest in understanding how important vital it is for our well-being to be multi-generational societies and not be so short-termist in thinking mm. we basically grow up to work and then work and become get thrown out of the system. And I think China in particular and much of Eastern civilizations and cultures are much better at valuing elders. And I think that's a lesson for the West and probably one of the reasons why China was so strong in its quarantine is really because it's, it understood this, this value of, of elders, maybe you could say self-preservation interests of the party, <laughs> where people are more than 60 on average. But I think there's something to be said for that about the value of elders, what, mm. we, what we value in life, not being only attached to our functions at work, but rather in our functions uh, in communities. Yeah. And, and you're in Italy right now. How has time for you personally shifted in this pandemic? Well, so I've been, I, I've, I'm actually in Spain. Oh. Well, I was, I was supposed to be in Italy, and that is where I had just moved to. But I have a, a son in France who goes to school in France, Paris. And therefore, I had to take him back from his holiday to France. And then I had to quarantine both of us, actually, already 40 days ago, exactly today, <laughs> funny enough, because we'd come back from Italy less than two weeks before. So he couldn't go to school, so I took him there. And then my wife and I had planned to go to America, but we really thought we couldn't because it would cut me off from my son, some of my work engagements. And so we decided to hold it out in Spain where she had gone for a medical retreat. So I joined her there and we've been forced to stay really. Luckily, we have a little bit of an infrastructure out here. So we, we spend some time in Spain generally every year. Yeah. So what was your question again? How has time shifted for shifted. you? Well, I think it's shifted obviously massively in terms of my relationship to mobility and others. 
I think that before, even though I had been prepared and I had designed my life to work remotely pretty much, even though I had business and kind of professional ties in many different geographies, uh, I work in seven countries on average. So that's, that means that I have to move a lot. And so that's changed. And one of the ways I dealt with it was to already engineer a bit of a you know, time shiftedness and remote work setup with a kind of mobile office. So I would say that that hasn't changed. So that's good. I was prepared for that. But what has changed is the perception that it's totally normal for me to disregard movement and the outside world, that I can be much more in one place. There's a, a disconnect between my relationship to work is global and distributed and digital. And my relationship to life is completely in one place. Almost. You know, when thinking about the current situation and as a futurist, what worries you most about how we come out of this? What What are you most concerned with? Well, we probably don't have time in this segment to go through some simulations, but I'd say right now I've got three dominant scenarios in my mind that range from not so good to very bad in the short term. Hmm. And then the, the not too bad. So the scenario number two is probably the best in the long term. So you know, it depends on where we place our responsiveness priorities. Basically, that's how the simulation goes in terms of the scenario planning. And so my main concern is that we, on the one hand, underestimate how destructive this virus can be for the things that we really need. So not just the things that we didn't need. It's great that it shaves off some of the unnecessary and the inessential. But I think it's very, very destructive and corrosive to things that we absolutely need of course, not to discount life itself and our loved ones, but also just in general, how we've built societies that have some intelligence and we should keep some of that. So I worry that we kind of underestimate the threat as the American president, we don't have to name his name, has done. And, you know, is somewhat, in my opinion, almost a criminal act because it lies to people in such a sad way. So that's kind of one big worry because I think that the consequence will be that we have a much, much bigger load of trouble to deal with. And that's obvious. There's no news there. The second kind of type of worry I have is that we don't leverage the trauma to make the hard decisions that we should be making uh, in terms of rebuilding, reconstructing truly more regenerative and resilient systemics for a number of echelons of management of the world. And I think that would be, therefore, a missed opportunity, whether we talk about climate change, which was one of the things that I was most focused on, or we talk about global health, general preparedness towards future pandemics and other issues of the kind. That, that would be very unfortunate that we just, you know, focus too much our attention once we've kind of dealt with the present crisis, that we kind of move back into crime, trying to harness all our abilities to reconstruct a not-so-sound normal that we had. So I, those are my worries, and I think that they come down to basically one thing, it's just leadership. That's why I really hope that we have a very strong civic engagement in favoring leaders who are doing the right time in crisis times. And I don't know that that's going to play out in the U.S. election, the domestic level. But I think in many countries, you know, we will have, and that's kind of a third type of worry I have, there won't be a possibility to stop the nonsense from happening because of the crisis time policy decisions, be it authoritarian or control devices that won't be switched off when we get out of the crisis. That's kind of the third level and has much deeper consequence in terms of the differential levels of recuperation of different countries. Yeah, I mean, the opportunistic manipulation of the moment 
we all experienced post 9-11, of course, and partly how we got to now. And, and we're already seeing that happening sort of all over the world. But our hope and, and what we're going to sort of hold faith in is the idea that everything is so incredibly explicit right now, which seems to be the unprecedented quality of this moment. Even Trump was forced to change his mind, you know, about Easter. And it's like, this is bigger than leadership. This is bigger than individuals. And, and everything is so incredibly explicit. And we're early. So imagine three months from now, the number of explicit sicknesses that just are clear that we're almost going to be forced because it's it's sort of beyond individual nation state leadership decisions. Do you think that that's possible? Do you think that that's kind of a silver lining here? Yeah, I'm all with you. I want it to be possible. Yeah, And I think that the effort I'm putting towards this moment is that that becomes the most likely option. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's any duty that we have, I think the kind of different types of duties, you know, there's those who are better at you know, local response, be it buying groceries for an old person or serving a meal to a homeless person. I mean, that is absolutely essential and you know, maybe the most important thing of all. But then there's other people who are better equipped to do other types of things on the other side of the spectrum. Probably maybe I belong to right now, so isolated from many different places where I could do such. And that's to really maximize the opportunity of collective organization of the intelligence pieces necessary to do the systemic changes that we want to see. And I think within that, whether it's a silver lining or not, I think that this sort of truth serum that the pandemic is becoming on the inefficiencies of our current leadership folk or class, it, it would be a, a great thing to manage to explain to a lot of people that feel like they don't know what to do in this moment, that there is actually a thing that they can do. And whether it's through logistical support, operational support, managerial support, you know, intellectual support, copywriting support, design support, all these kinds of jobs that are gotten less busy, if you want, because of the fact that people are staying at home. And even if they keep some amount of work, there's definitely a bit less work on average. I think it would be great if it would be possible to explain that there must be a pickup of some of that, let's say, larger piece of work that needs to be done collectively, yeah, that people should feel like they have an opportunity to jump into. And that's not totally clear. And some of the work that you know I'm involved in has to do with that centralization function at this moment of certain capacities and intel and decision-making. But I would really hope that a show like this one and that the alternative media sources become really strong at kind of explaining to people it's not just enough to protect yourself. Once you're out of trouble for you and your closest, then really think how you can contribute to that bigger effort because we need to use this opportunity because otherwise we're just going to fall back into something a lot worse. Mm. Yeah, and there's no, I mean, this, this idea of returning back to normal, it's like what, the incredibly sick normal that got us here? You know, yeah. like we need to... We need to make sure that that's that in moving forward and this reemergence or this emergence from this includes some contextual qualities, includes some narrative that explains the truth about why we're here, the the bureaucracies that got us here, the hubristic nature that's been at play in the last well several years, but especially in the last ten. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in your perspective on right now is how does technology and Silicon Valley's role tie into this? Where is that connection? What is the, what's the thread there? Well, I think if there was a, a moment where a 
we could say that we like Silicon Valley, it might be now because otherwise we would be disconnected from a lot of people. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, even though we've hated a lot of what came out of that exponential technology factory, I call it Silicon Valley because of the social media crisis and its impact on politics and loss of agency. I'm working as an advisor to the Futures Council on Human Rights, the future of human rights at the World Economic Forum. And we are now shifting our work towards COVID crisis. But basically, yeah, it's, it's clear that we were in the process of trying to be constructive about those attacks that were given on Facebook and you name it. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, you know, they did do some things wrong and they did other things right. So I think the situation of Silicon Valley is that it has an opportunity to redeem its soul in, you know, one kind of making sure that there's a dominant leverage of these digital tools to create the world we want to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's in terms of the protection of people's sense of agency or the manifestation of platforms that people can collaborate effectively now across multiple geographies, or the fact that it should allow for the acceleration of the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, in the biotech sector so we can accelerate you know, the data points that will give us a solid vaccine opportunity. All these things, basically, I think it's the soul of Silicon Valley mm-hmm. that's at play here. And luckily, the exponential times that we found ourselves in just before, and now we're in this great pause in some ways, I actually think this is a gift of the universe to reposition kind of human civilization in the right direction. And Silicon Valley is either an accelerator in the wrong direction or an accelerator in the right direction. So I'm calling upon Silicon Valley's, you know, kind of leaders to really seize the moment to be their best selves. And I would say not just the leadership, but, you know, the kids, the the brightest minds coming out of the best schools that are making choices to go into ad tech instead of putting their brains to work at helping solve species-wide crisis. I wonder how this is going to shift that decision-making. I hope in the right direction. I mean, luckily, like, so I'm involved with uh, producing a documentary about extinction rebellions, mm. kind of uh, change thesis, change-making thesis. So it's not that I endorse every single you know, civil disobedience act, but I do endorse the idea that we've come to a point where we need to do civil disobedience in mass to refuse to accept efficiently some of the idiosyncrasies that our governments are allowing to perpetuate. And therefore, I think that my point there is that XR has been, just like with Greta Thunberg, it has been quite youth, not led, but followed. Mm. And whether you look at the Sunrise Movement or you look at Bernie's followers in America, I think there's, there's an opportunity for youth really to kind of say, okay, well, We didn't get Bernie and we can't do mass mobilization in the street to save our climate or planet. So I will invest my talent in the online effort to reconstruct a lot of different things that would otherwise be even more dysfunctional. Mm. I'm in Brooklyn right now. And so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on on cities. It's, It's a little eerie. In New York, city life is just not what it was at all. And How do you view this moment from an urbanism perspective? I've heard some of my friends saying, like, I don't even get what the point of living in a city is if we can't all (laughs) be together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, thank you for the question. I want to tear this into, you know, like an ABC kind of thing. 
I think, A, in response directly to, you know, what's the point of cities, uh, we should remind ourselves it's an episode. You know, it's not forever that we will be living in social distancing, but we have to be prepared to live 18 to 24 months in that status and then be prepared to do that in intervals throughout history, probably more often than we would like. So basically, I still think that there is validity in the concept of the city, but what's happening is that the city is digitizing itself and we're accelerating accelerating the digitization of the city. And so, you know, we're seeing both kind of mass distribution of capability and capacity and talent and conversation. And we're also seeing uh, aggressive relocalization of purpose and meaning that might go maybe momentarily in a slight rural retreat, but will probably regain interest in kind of neighborhood logics that develop themselves beyond the megalopolis concept. So we've fallen into the track of the megalopolis domination where we would create more and more sprawl and we were trying to fight sprawl. I think this is a great way to fight sprawl. So that's to my point B really is that the things that were structurally illogical about the way we constructed the big cities and concentrated humans have to be rethought profoundly, you know, when it comes down to local nodes that function more as a distributed uh, metropolis. So I think we'll, we'll see mobility, energy, and work being redistributed in ways that are more prone to allow for people to function when there are these breakdowns of, let's say, the capacity to be together in public spaces. Mm. That should be, you know, a way to rethink not just the resilience and regenerative city, you know, like as a kind of more long-term thing, but also it should be a thing that guides our technological choices and our infrastructural investments I think in the near term, actually, let's say within the next five years, you know, there's lots of in, uh, obsolete infrastructure we were about to replace that so we're going to need to wait for us to be able to finance some of it. But that gives us time to choose maybe more mature technologies right. that make more sense with that point B. I, I was thinking, you know, specific to that right around the corner for me is the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. And there's this overpass yes. that normally when when we're in normal times has 55,000 cars going over it there's a speed there's a density right now that's not happening and they they've been trying to figure out working with Bjarke Ingels actually and some others on rethinking how to fix this either turn it into a park create an underground tunnel this is actually an opportunity i think for the city, though it's focused on so much else right now, to actually be rethinking some of its infrastructure that, that's currently not at prime occupancy or use. Totally. Well, you know, you just basically gave me my point C there, which is um, <laughs> <laughs> totally agree with you. And, you know, I know Bjarke has been asked to look at this question of, say, you know, a different version of the High Line, sort of more updated, less uh, yuppie version of the High Line. And I think that the... the Things I would love to see more are a couple of things. First one is understanding the power of the public realm to structure community well-being uh, as something that we invest in more massively. So infrastructures that are currently inscribed in a monoculture of function. I mean, for example, roads when you don't have cars on them. Does it make sense that we have such an infrastructure given to cars? and only to cars. So beyond the fact that their utility is, you know, 4% or something like that in time, and we'll wait for a ride sharing to really augment that fully. Uh, and we've done some in high dense areas like Manhattan. So, you know, without automation and with ride sharing not really being possible right now because of COVID-19, then, you know, 
what do you do? But I still think that that's, that's the real question. Do we need to build multi-purpose public space thinking much, 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 much better, especially in highly dense areas? Mm. Um, because then otherwise it pushes basically the city into this retreat format that's very unhealthy where you have the poor and vulnerable that are stuck and the rich that flee. And I think that's a, a very, very, not just unjust, but just inefficient and nonsensical way of structuring that. And public space can be a buffer for these kinds of natural inefficiencies. The second thing I'd love to see more of is, I would say, a kind of approach towards technological appropriateness that has to do with the co-investment between... So, for example, a city like New York and Brooklyn, your energy comes from somewhere, but it's not like you as a citizen can decide to become kind of an off-grid citizen within New York. And so I think we need to create more dispensations in code for people to be allowed to do the things that they feel are necessary for their level of appetite for risk mm. so that we don't distribute into the countryside, you know, this kind of neo-hippie approach to off-gridness, but actually we integrate within the urban fabric this ability to distribute risk and to create pockets of greater resilience through citizen engagement into the investment of the infrastructure that's required. So that's, you know, kind of a technological appropriate thing, kind of akin to some of the fab city work I was doing with MIT and a group of other municipalities in the world. You know, that basically we need to architect our ability to co-construct the things that we need. And right now our level of ability to do that is, is very close to nil. Part of the reason for that is code and the way that cities impose your need to connect to the grid. You're not allowed to do what you want. And I think we need to rethink that with appropriate dispensations. Well, I think one thing that we can all feel hopeful for is that there are people like you and in your extended community that are going to be um, keeping your eye and strong arm on this as we come out of this. So we really appreciate your thoughts today. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew and Spencer. It's been great. And um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. And I hope this is useful to uh, whomever is listening. And I wish everyone to come out of this stronger. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.